Welcome again to Profiles on Nantucket Community Television. I'm Charlie Walters. With me today are Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, the co-authors of the book, The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III, which was published on September 29, 2020. Peter Baker is the chief White House correspondent for the New York Times and a political analyst for both MSNBC and PBS. I should note that he is not related to James Baker. Susan Glasser is a staff writer for The New Yorker, a global affairs analyst for CNN, and also a political analyst for PBS. Last and by no means least, Peter and Susan are husband and wife. Welcome to the program, Susan. This is your first time here. And Peter, welcome back to the program. You also appeared in 2019. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Uh, Susan, I'll begin with you. Why James Baker and why now? Well, it, why now is an easy answer. Uh, completely unintentionally uh, uh, is the first part of that, and also sort of a product of the Trump era. Uh, as with a lot of things, uh, events have intervened. We've been working on this since uh, long before any of us imagined Donald Trump as president. This goes back to the uh, Obama era when um, Peter published a book about uh, the Bush and Cheney presidency, uh, and uh, he was... Uh, connected to someone in Texas who said, hey, I've got a great subject for your next book, Jim Baker. And it turned out that no one had ever written a, a, a real biography of this most impactful figure in modern American politics. So both of us left it the chance uh, because we saw it as a way to really write about Washington and how it had changed. This is a guy who goes from the end of Watergate, essentially to the end of the Cold War and tells you the story of a very different moment in our national politics than the one we're living through right now. Uh, given his resume, if you will, it's, it's surprising no one has written a biography before now. I guess he wrote a memoir, but not, not a true autobiography. That's right, yeah. No, it is stunning because you think about a lot of secretaries of state who did a lot less, who have had biographies written about them. And this is a guy who not only was secretary of state through the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Gulf War, the reunification of Germany. He also was, you know, Reagan's first chief of staff. He was also, he was also a political fixer. He ran five presidential campaigns. So think about that. Imagine you had, say, Kissinger and Karl Rove rolled into one. This is a guy who was both on the policy side and the political side through so many events, as Susan said, from a whole generation uh, in our history. But Susan, when you go back to his early years, you probably wouldn't have guessed he would end up where he did for a lot of reasons. He had a lot of failures early on, and he started off as a Democrat. Uh, talk about his early years. Well, you know, it's, it's an excellent point, actually. That was one of the things I think I learned the most in uh, doing this biography is actually uh, the story behind this man who was sort of omnipresent uh, in the Washington uh, of our youth or early adulthood, Jim Baker, turns out to have been kind of the most successful midlife career change <laughs> you could possibly imagine. Uh, you know, a sort of scion of a Houston family that, that helped build the city. He came essentially from a group of very, very conservative small city lawyers in Texas who told him and literally beat into him as a child, don't have anything to do with politics. The only baker before him who ever had anything to do with politics was uh, a judge, an elected judge, in the Civil War on the wrong side of history. And I don't think the family thought that worked out very well. And so uh, he was really strictly uh, brought into a life of both privilege, but obligation and duty as he grew up in, in Houston. Uh, he was born along with the depression in 1930, uh, never suffered from its effects, uh, lived in a very isolated bubble of uh, country clubs. And uh, it was only a family tragedy uh, his wife, his young wife, died uh, by the age of 40 of breast cancer. He changed his life largely because of someone he met on the tennis courts of the Houston Country Club, George H.W. Bush, his doubles partner and his best friend. Bush understood this tragedy and really nudged and pushed his friend uh, to change his life at a time when Baker was very open to it. And it turned out when he came to Washington, uh, barely 40 himself, that he was extraordinarily good at this. And he rose within one year from political nobody to be running the election campaign of the president of the United States, Jerry Ford. 
Now, Peter, before we got to that point, uh, you, know, you mentioned the, the failures or shortcomings. I just want to go over them. Uh, in 1970, he worked for George H.W. Bush's uh, Senate campaign, uh, and Bush lost that campaign. Um, in 1976, he ran Jerry Ford's losing campaign against Jimmy Carter. In 78, he ran for Texas Attorney General and lost that. Uh, in 1980, uh, he ran George H.W. Bush's presidential campaign, which Ronald Reagan ended up with the nomination. Um, by this time, he's in his early 50s. Uh, when all those unachievements, non-achievements were behind him, did you ever think about just chucking the whole thing? <laughs> great question. Look, you know, there's a phrase in Washington, sometimes it's called win by losing. Uh, Jim Baker's a great example of win by losing. He, did, he didn't win those campaigns, but he did better in them than I think a lot of people expected. Jerry Ford was down by 30, 33 points to Jimmy Carter in the summer when Jim Baker took over as the general chairman of the campaign and Baker got him to win one or two points. Similarly, George Bush was the last man standing against Ronald Reagan. He didn't win in 1980, but he did sufficiently well that he earned a, way, a place on the ticket as vice president and he earned, and Jim Baker earned his way into the Reagan campaign as a respected uh, political operative. So even though he didn't win exactly what he set out to, he won a place for himself at the table. And I think that was what was most important. The thing that he didn't do uh, was turn into a successful political candidate himself. Uh, and that 1978 uh, Texas Attorney General race uh, was the only time that Jim Baker uh, would succumb to the lure of being the man uh, not behind the scenes, but in front of the camera. And you know, it turned out uh, this was not a guy who was born to walk up to strangers and kiss babies. Uh, he didn't like it. He wasn't good at it. And the result actually was that he was far more successful probably than he would have been had he won that attorney general race because uh, it enabled him to be free for when Ronald Reagan called him up to Washington as White House chief of staff. And really, you know, it is the next decade of his life when uh, Baker went on to assemble a remarkable run at the, at the top of some of the key institutions in the world. So Ronald Reagan had maybe not a lot to put behind him, but uh, a lot of things to, to think about, uh, considering that Baker had uh, worked in effect against Reagan prior to taking the chief of staff position. Um, but some of that came back to haunt him in 1982. There was a move among conservatives to, to get rid of Jim Baker. Yeah, Baker was never a popular figure with the Reagan right. They didn't, he, because he hadn't worked on his campaigns. In fact, he had worked against him in two campaigns, the 1976 nomination battle between Ford and Reagan, as well as the 1980 nomination battle between Bush and Reagan. He was never trusted. He was seen as, you know, a moderate, which is uh, probably not a completely fair uh, characterization. He is a conservative, but he's a pragmatist. He just didn't believe in waging jihad for the sake of, 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 of the issue if he wasn't gonna get something done. So you're right, 1982 and other, and other points really in his time in the Reagan White House, he had the conservatives gunning for him, telling uh, Reagan that he, they shouldn't, uh, he shouldn't have a guy like Baker there, he was selling him out. What people didn't understand was that Reagan, as conservative as he was, was also kind of a pragmatist. He didn't believe in uh, waging fights he wasn't gonna win either. He would tell Baker all the time, I'd rather uh, win 80% of what I'm trying to get than uh, run off the cliff flying my flag looking for 100% that I'm not gonna get. And I think that, that was something that Baker actually channeled. Uh, and he became, the, he became the target for people who might've been upset about Reagan, but couldn't take it out on the man himself. And so went after the staff and Baker was a convenient target. Although I must say that tells you the difference between the Republican party of then and the Republican party of today. The incentive structure was for Reagan and for Baker to be able to make deals successfully with the other party in Congress. And you know that was where the political reward system went through. And the Republican Party uh, has evolved so dramatically. I, it's hard to imagine someone uh, with that pragmatism and that willingness uh, to uh, get as much as he could, but fundamentally uh, to have an ideology that viewed uh, flexibility with the other side as, as a key aspect of it, you know, that's just not the world we're living in. Essentially, uh, it was Baker's opponents in the internal wars of the 1980s who emerged ascendant in the Republican Party decades later. 
Well, to dig a little deeper on that, Baker obviously survived this attempt to get rid of him. Was that more Reagan digging his heels in, or did he have sufficient uh, alliances within his own party to tell the conservatives, to be able to tell the conservatives, you're not going to get your way this time? You know, the ally that uh, Jim Baker had who mattered the most was Ronald Reagan, and especially his wife, Nancy Reagan, who, of course, was a major uh, power inside the Reagan White House. And, you know, he was perceived as brilliant at uh, running and managing the internecine politics of the Reagan court, which were uh, every bit as uh, complicated, uh, Byzantine and backstabbing uh, as, as anything we're seeing today. Uh, it's just that Jim Baker was a master at that kind of internal politics and his boss viewed him as uh, indispensable. So not only did he survive that, he ended up running Reagan's reelection campaign in 1984. And that was one of the most, one of the biggest landslides in American presidential history. Now, Reagan obviously was a very, very popular figure in the mid 80s, but um, how much of that landslide margin was Reagan and how much was James Baker? This goes back to what you were talking about, Peter. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, a lot of it was the times, right? Reagan was popular. We remember Reagan as being popular, but a lot of times in his first term, he wasn't. I mean, there was, there was a second recession that hobbled him. He comes into the end of 1983, kind of on his back heels. Uh, it's only as the economy begins to get uh, really good again in early 84 that he turns into the Colossus that he later becomes electorally. And some of that obviously uh, is Baker because he's, he's running the White House for him and he's helping him uh, get his legislative priorities through and he's helping him shape his image. He's helping him you know, focus on the fights that are winnable rather than on the ones that aren't. And I think that Baker had a finely tuned sense of what would sell to the electorate and what wouldn't and how to manage a candidate who had his own particular way of doing things. That was always you know, one of his keys is he worked for four different Republican presidents. Basically, uh, between Nixon and Trump, nobody became a Republican president or stayed in office anyway without his help. And he understood each of them and their dynamics, how to make them uh, successful as best they could, uh, even if he was the guy behind the scenes. Following Reagan's reelection, uh, early in Reagan's second term in 1985, uh, Baker was still chief of staff and Donald Reagan was the secretary of the treasury. Very early on in that second term, and it sounds like something out of the sports pages, they swapped jobs. <laughs> what was all that about? Well, this is a great moment where Regan is just angry that something had leaked from a meeting and he calls up Baker and he's just really hacked off and he's yelling and he's threatening to quit. And Baker has to make this go away. He's tired and he has to trump over the treasury department, sit down with the treasury secretary, calm him down, get him off the ledge and say, look, you know, you're not gonna quit over. This is a silly thing to quit over. And they were both exhausted men after four years at the top of their particular uh, institutions. And Regan says to him, you look tired. He says, Ray Baker says, yeah, I really am. And, they, and he has him saying, well, maybe we should just you know, switch jobs. And you're right. It's kind of this crazy out of the blue kind of thought. And they end up making it happen. It's one of these things that shows a little bit about how things work in the Reagan White House. Because Reagan had nothing to do with it, really. This is all a trade between these two men, each of them looking for a new challenge. Uh, Baker had been so eager for so long to uh, get away from being a fixer. He didn't want to be a fixer anymore. He wanted to be a principal. He wanted to be a statesman. He wanted to be somebody of consequence. And Treasury Secretary is a pretty good job. So he was more than eager to do it. Reagan saw himself as a potential sort of prime minister in effect under Reagan. He turned out not to be as good at that job uh, as Baker had been. And Susan, how did Baker do as Secretary of the Treasury? Well, first of all, I think he was relieved not to be chief of staff anymore. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he will note, as will others, that Iran-Contra did not happen on his watch. Uh, and uh, a lot of people believe it wouldn't. In fact, it was interesting in doing the book uh, to find out that even at the very beginning of uh, Reagan's presidency, uh, Baker was very suspicious of the ideologues inside the administration, inside the National Security Council, in particular, who wanted to pull Reagan deep into a sort of ideological uh, uh, wars and uh, confrontation with the Soviet Union through proxies in Latin America. And uh, there's a great 
scene in the book, you know, very early on where Baker is like, you know, I, I know they're trying to get us in there. We've got to make sure uh, that we keep us out of it, even though his mandate was not really to do foreign policy as White House chief of staff. So he was delighted to be over at the Treasury. Uh, it is, as Peter said, one of the most, you know, sort of august cabinet positions that there is short of Secretary of State. And what's remarkable about Baker is that he did not come from Wall Street. He did not come from the financial markets. He had only grounding in this of uh, you know an undergraduate course in economics at Princeton decades before, and didn't he didn't do so well. He was no good student, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, you know, it's it's a remarkable thing to think that he forged at this. In fact, uh, you know, he'll still talk your ear off about the uh, Plaza Accords that he negotiated uh, with. Uh, uh, other top central bankers in the world, which actually arguably uh, marked a key moment uh, paving the way for the sort of era of globalization uh, and uh, cross-border commerce uh, that the next two decades would come to be known for. But the big thing he did actually, which is really kind of telling in terms of today, was to put together a tax reform to really overhaul the whole tax code. And he did it with the Democrats. Mm -hmm. You know, we have, we talk about tax reform a lot these days and President Trump obviously cut taxes in his, uh, his early part of his tenure, but there was not tax reform in the sense that what Baker did, what Baker did was he sat down with Dan Rosenkowski, the lead Democrat in the house. He sat down with other Democrats as well as Republicans. And they just had a deal in which they rewrote the tax code to make it simpler. They thought fairer something we can't even imagine today. It hasn't, nothing like that has happened in the time, in the 30 some years since then, in which both parties sat down and said, okay, how can we make this a better tax code for everybody? Well, and by the way, that was essentially the key legislative accomplishment of Reagan's second term because uh, largely that second term was overshadowed uh, by the Iran-Contra scandal, by increasing questions about uh, the Reagan presidency. And you know, Reagan promised this uh, as a key part of his second term agenda. And it was up to Baker to sort of turn it into reality. It was extremely unlikely. In hindsight, we think of it as inevitable. There was no bigger Washington shibboleth at that time than the idea that the tax code was hopelessly complicated and unreformable. Uh, and it's exactly the kind of big deal that's eluded politicians, uh, bipartisan politicians for, for the last few decades. I mean, think about it. There's nothing recently uh, that you can imagine. As you know, Obamacare was public, uh, sorry, as you know, Obamacare was passed with uh, essentially only democratic votes. It was a one party uh, massive reform of the system. Both parties for years have talked about infrastructure as a bipartisan priority. There's not even been a single serious effort uh, to make that, uh, which generally is very popular, to spend government money on big programs. Can't even do that anymore. In 1988, he switched jobs again, and he ran uh, the then Vice President Bush's presidential campaign, which was, of course, successful. And he became uh, George H.W. Bush's Secretary of State, which is when things really began to happen. But before we get there, uh, I want to make a, a detour and talk about the writing of your book, as opposed to the subject matter. Uh, this is not the first time you've worked together. Tell us about that first book. <laughs> well, actually, you know, the way we got together was was working together. We were, we met in the newsroom of the Washington Post back in 1998. Uh, she was my boss. She was my editor. Technically not. <laughs> she edited my stories, and uh, we so we worked together actually from the from the very beginning. Uh, we did then go to Moscow together as co-bureau chiefs, and we came back and wrote a book called Kremlin Rising, which is about Vladimir Putin and the rise of him and his uh, uh, you know, secret service click and how they were transforming Russia again. So we have written together before. We will write together again. I think uh, it's been a- We're still on speaking terms. We're still so on speaking that's, terms. That's so. <laughs> uh, the, the Baker book, whose idea was that? I think it's both of ours actually. We talked about, you know, after the Bush-Cheney book, as she mentioned, we were sort of thinking through what would be a good book. Who hasn't been written about? We're trying to think, you know, what president, what significant figure in Washington has been kind of ignored or, or overlooked. And Baker was an obvious choice. As Susan mentioned, a friend in Texas mentioned to us that, that Baker was particularly interested in cooperating, which made it better. We had great cooperation in this book. It's not an authorized body. He didn't have any control over it. He didn't read it before we gave it to the publisher or anything like that. But we spoke with them a lot. We had, uh, uh, I've forgotten how many hours and hours. hours. Yeah, yeah, you know, lots and lots. And he gave us full access to his archives, which 
including some things that have never been published before, never been seen before. We talked to all eight of his children, his wife. Uh, we talked to his nanny from when he was a child, who was over 100 years old. So we had a real great, great access to a lot of people for this book. And that's one of the things that made it fun is to be able to have a, uh, a real 360 degree look at somebody's life who had such consequence. Well, and we were able to, we, we went and visited him and his wife, uh, Susan, on their ranch in Wyoming, which plays a, a key role in his life. Uh, he's as much, in many ways, actually a man of the West as he is a man of Texas. And, uh, you know, seeing them and their partnership, I think Baker was, was taken with the idea of a, a professional partnership, uh, which is what he has had in some ways with his second wife uh, for, for the last few decades. And, uh, you know, I think for us, Washington writ large has been, uh, you know, the subject in many ways uh, for both Peter and I of our journalism careers. And I think what attracted us was the story of Baker himself, but also the opportunity to write the story of Washington uh, in this period of time that ran from the end of Watergate to the end of the Cold War. Uh, obviously, it's almost the, the sort of mirror inverse of this moment that we're living in right now. And so I think we both instantly saw in it the potential to write a book that was about a man, but also about power and how it's wielded, uh, and also about our politics and how dramatically it's changed in some ways over this period. Now, when you did interviews, would both of you conduct the interviews, or did you split up a list of names? Sometimes we did them together, sometimes we did them separately. It depended on, on the particular uh, moment. Uh, we did a number of the Baker interviews together. It was, uh, I think, useful actually to have both of us. Sometimes she did them separately or I did them separately, but it's, uh, uh, it, was a, it was a combined effort. It was a big project too, I have to say. Uh, you know, with the world uh, having changed pretty dramatically in the last few years that we were working on it, it was pretty nice to have uh, a partner to be doing this with. It, this is an enormous undertaking, really, because it is such a big subject and Baker's life touches on so many different aspects of Washington. Now, would you conduct your research the same way you did the interviews? Would you, did all of you see all the documents that the other saw? Yeah, we had all the information together and files that we share and so forth. And then uh, uh, one of us would write, you know, a chapter the other would rewrite it. I mean, it was just, uh, we have a pretty good, we have a pretty good rhythm, I think, at this point. Uh, we're celebrating this month our 20th anniversary, so it seems to be uh, senior. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, when someone reads the book, uh, can they, can, can someone tell who wrote what sentence or what paragraph or what chapter? Well, that's a good question. I don't know. We haven't had enough readers yet, really, to see. I do. One of our good friends uh, uh, who also was a journalist in Russia told me once that when she first read Our Kremlin Rising, she spent a lot of time trying to figure out and she was quite sure she knew who had written which chapter of that book. Uh, I never and, tested that yeah. though. So we we'll see, <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, uh, this one might be harder to, to tell actually. Well, this whole process fascinates me. We get two writers working on the same book. I mean, do you have two separate offices or would you be in the same office at the same time? Actually, for the first few years, we had a we shared an office. We've moved houses since then. We each now have a separate, small office next to each other. Uh, but um, you know, you know, now with COVID, like everybody else, <laughs> great. This is our this kitchen is our yeah, office. Yeah, yeah, we're at home and uh, everybody else uh, uh, working together. You sort of answered this question already, but I'll ask it again, and maybe you can expand a bit. Uh, maybe I'm putting myself on thin ice. I, I want to hear more about. Uh, two spouses working on a project together, especially over a long period of time in the same house, maybe in the same room. I'll tell you a story about our first book. <laughs> our first book, which is about Russia, we said, uh, when we were writing that, Susan was pregnant with our son uh, and we had just moved back from Russia. So we had a lot going on. She was renovating the house and you know, moving boxes in and getting the, ready for the baby and, and you know, writing a book. And so the night, one night we were out for dinner we're walking back to the house and she said, I, I think we're, you know, I think we're almost right here basically. And well, the point was that it, our son wasn't due for three weeks and we yeah. were scrambling to finish right. the book. Uh, and I did feel that baby drop. I didn't know what that meant. And I said, well, we better hurry up. <laughs> so we were up most of the night finishing the last, we, you, can't, you can't have the baby because we have two chapters left to do. <laughs> so that, most of that night finishing these two chapters. And uh, when she went to bed, I know maybe five in the morning or something, I came up with 
couple hours later, I said, look, I've just sent, we're all good. I just sent the last two chapters to the publisher. She said, good, because I'm having contractions. <laughs> Our son was born that day. <laughs> That's um, deadline performance. I, I should say so. Inevitably, you must have come into a situation where it had to be one way or the other, and you couldn't compromise on it. Um, and this is really a question not just about writing a book, but about anything. Um, what did you do in cases like that? Well, again, she was my boss when we started, so we established the relationship in the beginning. <laughs> the truth is, is that Peter did uh, so much of the heavy lifting of this book, and I think that, uh, you know, in some ways, I bring my editing uh, background to bear in addition to my writing. You know, we're used to working with editors and going back and forth on things. And uh, look, uh, you know, maybe my editing background was, was useful in this, uh, but you know, we're both used to working and going back and forth with colleagues and editors. And I cannot think of a single time in either book where there was a sort of my way or the highway confrontation. Uh, you know, in life we have those uh, moments, but I can't think of a single one uh, knocking wood here on, in our books. <laughs> Let's go back to 1989, and James Baker is now Secretary of State, and uh, all hell breaks loose all over the world. Uh, the dissolving of the Soviet Union, the Gulf War, and there he is on the spot. Um, talk about those years for Baker. You know, this was the most extraordinary period in uh, his life, and really in, in any of ours, you know, somebody said to me recently, 1989 might well have been uh, the best year of our lives in a geopolitical sense. We just didn't know it at the time. Uh, and remember, Baker and Bush have just come in to office, right? You know, the inauguration is barely behind them. Uh, they understand that things are changing in the Soviet Union, but in fact, they hit pause when they came in to uh, the White House, and they weren't sure uh, whether Reagan had been right to be uh, barreling down the road of uh, partnership with Mikhail Gorbachev. And there was a lot of frustration those first few months, real skepticism. Uh, there was almost no one, and I say almost because there were a few prescient fools, but there was almost no one in Washington who thought that within months the Berlin Wall would have collapsed and uh, the two Germanys would be reunited on a fast track. And yet uh, you could write a whole book just about this period in Jim Baker's life. And I, I do believe in some ways that the chapter on German unification and the role that Baker and US diplomacy played in that uh, were perhaps his most significant accomplishment. The window for doing that in the way that it turned out was very, very short as it, as it happened. And imagine the unraveling of Gorbachev's position in the Soviet Union. There was the hardline coup against him uh, uh, just a short time later in August of 1991. Imagine if that had happened sooner. There was Saddam's invasion of Kuwait and the distraction for the United States and George H.W. Bush in particular of the Middle East. Uh, so it, it was really an incredible moment. And of course, uh, you know, we're still looking at that legacy today of those few months. Uh, to this day, George H.W. Bush is still getting kudos from all sides for the way he handled the Gulf War. Uh, how much of an influence was James Baker on United States policy at that time? Well, Baker was really important, obviously, as a diplomat, but also as a president's friend. You know, the day the war starts, Bush is nervous. He's very uh, anxious because the Pentagon has told him there may be as many as 20,000 casualties. There are body bags being sent to the Gulf. And the person he calls is Jim Baker. He says, come on over, Jimmy, have lunch with me. And the two of them have lunch on the day the war is going to be starting. That tells you something. That's the person he wants to comfort himself with at that moment. And Baker helps him put together the coalition of allies that, that ends up joining the war. Not only they join the war, he ends up convincing most of them to pay for the war. This is the first war in American history that we basically didn't even pay for. We got, the allies paid for it himself. That would be something you would think would appeal to President Trump. But he also helped him keep from going too far, right? That, that in the end, uh, he made the point to Bush, and I think Bush agreed, that going further after having expelled the Iraqis from Kuwait, going further all the way to Baghdad would be a mistake beyond the writ, beyond the mandate they had, beyond it would, brush, it would mess up the coalition, it would get them, uh, uh, make them owners of a broken country and that they didn't want to do that. And for years, Baker says that he would get questions about that. Well, why, how come you guys didn't go on to Baghdad and take out, take out Saddam Hussein? 
And of course, we all saw what happened when George W. Bush did that. And Baker will tell you, he said, I never get those questions anymore. Well, just eight years before this, or, or less than that, really, um, there were a lot of conservatives out to get James Baker. Were their minds changed by the time of the Gulf War and the, and the Soviet Union dissolution, or were they just keeping quiet about it? Look, th this view of conservatives, that Jim Baker was not really one of them, that in their internecine fights with the Republican Party, that he was on the other sort of moderate, ideologically suspect, pragmatist side, that never really went away. Uh, and to this day, it's what rankles uh, Baker most. He sees himself, uh, you know, as a pragmatist, but fundamentally as a conservative. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the critiques that sting that tell you something about a man and how he wants to be uh, remembered. And I do think that, uh, you know, in the end, he came away. Uh, he's no uh, hawk in a, a Dick Cheney-esque way. He came out of his time uh, at the commanding heights of Washington with a deep, deep skepticism uh, and concern and uh, uh, wariness of the use of force and the uh, projection of American power in the world. And, uh, you know, he was always against the invasion of Iraq uh, that George W. Bush made. Now, he wasn't as uh, vociferous about it in public uh, as Brent Scowcroft, uh, George H.W. Bush's national security advisor who recently passed away. Scowcroft, as you'll remember, you know, infuriated George W. Bush with public criticism on the eve of the Iraq invasion. Uh, Baker managed always to thread the needle a little bit more carefully, but he was deeply uh, and remains deeply skeptical about the use of military force when any other alternative uh, is possible. He was rightly placed at the State Department in, in American diplomacy rather than at the Pentagon. Uh, George H.W. Bush was a one-term president, and I've read, uh, tell me if this is true or not, that he seemed to be the only person in the White House who uh, thought he was going to win the election. Everybody else thought he, he just wasn't going to make it. Uh, is that true? And what did Baker think? Well, Baker is such a, so Baker's watching a lot of this election uh, play out from the State Department, and he he thinks it's not going well. He thinks they're making mistakes. He can't believe it when Bush repudiate. He, doesn't, he can't believe when Bush uh, goes along with uh, uh, this tax deal. And then he can't believe when Bush then repudiates it. He thinks that it's being handled. He doesn't want anything to do with it anymore. It's, it's Bush who kind of ends up bringing Baker back to the White House in the last few months of the campaign to help try to salvage a campaign that seems to be going down. Baker doesn't want to do it. He's a statesman now. He's been negotiating Middle East peace. He doesn't want to have to go back and decide on how many, you know, ducks are, are going to be at a rally or, you know, balloons are dropping from the, the, the ceiling of a convention hall. But he doesn't because Bush is his friend and because he has no choice. But he doesn't really have his heart in it. And there are a lot of people who think, well, he didn't work hard enough or he, uh, he knew it was a losing effort. And so he tried to distance himself from it. Uh, and it may be that it would have made no difference had he come back earlier. But it is sort of a sour moment in this relationship between these two friends because he didn't actually uh, manage to pull out a campaign that uh, Bush would go on to lose. Yeah, there were a lot of hard feelings from that and Barbara Bush in particular, I think, uh, was very resentful of Baker and felt that he uh, had been in it for himself and not really looking out for her George. Uh, and, you know, in the end, I would say, uh, they were more like family at the beginning and then at the end of their lives. Uh, but this was probably their time of testing in terms of the relationship between the Bushes and the Bakers. So come 1993, James Baker is out of a job in Washington. Uh, what did he do at that point? Did he think he was done with politics or statesmanship? Not quite, not quite. At that point, you know, he had been so close to now three presidents in a row that like a lot of people who are close to presidents, they think, well, heck, I'm smart enough, I can do this. And so he thought he would test it out. He would actually uh, explore a possible presidential campaign of his own. And he, he made soundings among his friends, he talked to his family about it. And I think in the end, he decided that he would enjoy being president, he just wouldn't enjoy being a candidate. The party was moving away from him. This is the party now of Newt Gingrich, which came in in the 1994 elections. And again, because as you point out, the conservatives were always suspicious on it, it wasn't sort of Jim Baker's party anymore. And he ultimately decided not to run uh, for president in 1996. Yeah, he's not a culture warrior. He uh, is not someone you can imagine uh, thriving on the politics that we have now, or even the politics 
of uh, the 1990s. He just, he, he wasn't uh, the opposite of an overshare. This is a man who still to this day does not use email, uh, never mind Twitter. And, uh, you know, it just, uh, it was not a world in its confrontationalism, in its scorched earthness, uh, in its uh, decision that it was better to be permanently campaigning than permanently governing. Uh, that almost the antithesis of uh, the kind of uh, political record that he himself had assembled. Well, I believe this is the time when he wrote his memoirs. He did. He wrote his first book about his time as Secretary of State. And um, it's a very Baker-like production. He assembles a committee of writers and researchers. They have lots of memos. They're very assiduously preparing and very assiduously you know, uh, shaping the record, right? It's, it's, a, it's a Baker operation. So there are parts in the book, which is some fascinating memos in which they take things out of the book that he decides politically he doesn't want to be in there. And there are fights among his aides saying, well, you can't do that. You're trying to scrub history. And he says, well, this is my story the way I want to tell it. So he takes out, for instance, any doubts about Iraq. He takes out, you know, anything that uh, uh, reflects badly on certain people. And uh, I think that tells you a lot about Baker. Even in his memoirs, he's thinking like a politi you know, a political operative about the best way to present his story to the public and to history. Yeah, this is one of my favorites of the book in what it reveals. I mean, if our goal uh, was to write a book about Washington and how a sort of master power broker operates, to me, uh, the calculations over the presentation of his own history uh, were fascinating. What you delete from the book turns out to be far more interesting, uh, of course, than what's in the book itself. And it's, it's a very unique, uh, uh, access that we had to this kind of back and forth, uh, very well documented. Uh, we all suspect if you try to read many of those doorstop tomes uh, that former presidents and statesmen turn out, right, they're pretty deadly reading. Uh, you know, I'd love to know uh, what that process was like for a lot of other figures. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really, I thought it was really cool that we were able to um, have this kind of insight into the power broker at sort of cultivating his own image. So was it Baker himself who gave you access to those deleted passages? Yeah, he said we could have basically access. To, well, B Baker allowed us access to his archives, which are at Princeton, which is where he went to college. And we found them uh, in the boxes there. We found all these files that they had compiled for the writing of the memoir, including the memos back and forth over what should be taken out and what shouldn't be. And so I don't know that he, it wasn't like he was volunteering this to us, but they were in those files and, I, and he didn't object to us uh, looking at anything. Yeah. Yet. And, you know, look, it's a reminder uh, that, you know, historians have thrived on documentary evidence and, you know, who knows what this uh, email era is going to offer in the way of that. Uh, there was another trove of documents that I personally found extremely insightful and fascinating that were in the Princeton thing. And they were pile and file after file, uh, these memos from his father, uh, this very controlling, dominant figure of his early life. Uh, and Nick, I found- Nick, Nicknamed the warden. The warden, that's right. He was, he was really a controlling man. And you can see how it was that a man as prodigiously talented as Jim Baker turned out to be, uh, he did not really flourish necessarily under this. Uh, you, you saw these little handwritten notes from his dad over years and years where Jim Baker, a grown man with four children, a partner at a major law firm in Houston. His father is sending him uh, checks uh, to pay the nanny's salary, to buy his wife's birthday gift, uh, to buy a station wagon, uh, even to buy a new suit from Brooks Brothers. And, you know, you just get more of a sense, I think, in just sitting in the library and reading uh, a pile of these notes over time than you might have, uh, you know, from many sort of self-serviews. So. The ultimate helicopter parent. <laughs> Absolutely. This is a fascinating family. It's a family that really built modern Houston in a lot of ways. Baker is James Baker III, but he's really actually the fourth James Baker. And there's a huge legacy there. His mother tells him, you've got a big legacy to live up to. So that's part of the story is this, you know, the, this Houston aristocracy, this Houston aristocracy coming to terms with his own family and his obligations to it and his own interest in, in a wider world. Well, Houston is now the fourth largest city in the United States. And if, you know, when, when Baker was a youngster, I'm sure if someone had said this is going to happen, he probably would have laughed. Well, I don't know. I mean, really, his, uh, in particular, his grandfather, uh, you know, was essentially one of the founders of almost every major institution in Houston, including uh, Rice University, where uh, the Baker Institute 
now resides. Essentially, that was built uh, by his grandfather uh, with legacy of this uh, fascinating uh, character in the life of the city, William uh, Marsh Rice. Uh, but it was Baker's, uh, not the Rice's who made who made that. Uh, Baker went to uh, a school that his father was the chairman of the board. He grew up in a neighborhood that was developed uh, by his father and grandfather, that both country clubs he belonged to. Uh, his grandfather had been a founding member of the board of directors. It was really uh, an environment that was closely controlled and shaped uh, more than almost any of us ever experienced by his own family. And they had a boundless sense of the opportunity that came with uh, the rise of Houston. Come 1996, it would appear, uh, or be easy to, to infer that his political career was over. Little did he know what was going to happen in 2000. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, 2000, he's brought back. Look, so in 2000, of course, George W. Bush, the, his friend's son, is running for president. And W. doesn't want anything to do with the old 41 crowd because it's going to be, you know, masculine to him if it looks like he's just simply daddy's boy. So he doesn't he doesn't bring in guys like Baker to the campaign, even though, of course, Baker is probably the most successful political uh, person in the country at that point. So Baker, Baker's kept off on the sidelines, and he understands that. He's a, he's a, he gets it. He back sends W. Bush notes, you know, telling him, look, don't worry, I understand, you know, you don't need me on this. But the election happens, and suddenly it all comes down to Florida, where there the, the, just a hundred votes between the two candidates. That's when W calls Baker and says, hey, I need you, Jimmy. And he brings them in. Baker, of course, then runs the Florida recount for the next 35, 36 days. And, you know, at least partially as a result of his efforts, uh, you know, George W. Bush is, uh, you know, is, is uh, uh, ratified as the next president of the United States. I think that's part of actually the legend, is certainly, of Baker in present-day Washington. I'll tell you, it was many Democrats, uh, when we were working on this book, who said to us, you know, as soon as we heard that morning in 2000 that Jim Baker was going down there to go toe to toe with Warren Christopher, we knew that um, George W. Bush was going to become the president. And I, you know, I think that's genuine. There was a high, high regard for Baker, both as a tactician and as a strategist when it came to this most high stakes and really unprecedented confrontation. He had a real clarity uh, to what they were doing with the team uh, that was very different uh, than the Democrats arguably kind of muddled thinking about how uh, to win it. Uh, has Baker himself had much to say about that period of his life? Yeah, look, he, he's, he's proud of it. He, uh, you know, I know he's still, he's a, a bet noir for a lot of Democrats who think that that uh, process took the presidency away from Al Gore unfairly. But Baker says, look, you know, every count that was ever made had George W. Bush ahead. Uh, and his job was there was not to go and, and, and make the process perfect, but to go there and seal a victory that he thought had been uh, won. And he was, uh, you know, he was willing to trade off of conservative principles. For instance, you know, conservatives say we don't like to go to the federal courts on state issues. He says, forget that. The, the answer to this is going to be in the Supreme Court of the United States. And he was one of the first ones to say that in the Republican side. So I think that, yeah, he's, I think that was a meaningful moment. Uh, and also kind of like the coda to his long career. You know, it's at this point that he begins to, you know, the, the sort of the last moment where he is the, the man, right? That he is the, the, the person who shapes events in our world. And it's after that as W comes in and heads a different direction that Baker finds his influence beginning to fade. And it's, the, it's sort of the end of an era. Well, I also think that's right. I also think that uh, for Baker, this was a moment that was a clarifying moment. If you're trying to understand the man and what he really was, uh, he was uh, not interested in participating in a gentleman's club, uh, even though he certainly was the archetypal club member. Uh, he was a competitor. And he was, if you want to understand one thing about his personality, uh, is that winning wasn't everything for him. It was the only thing. And that's actually what he had in common with George H.W. Bush, also been described as one of the most competitive men on the planet. And I think that's what made them good friends. But when Baker was called up in 2000, his first meeting with Warren Christopher, which we describe in the book as instructive, uh, you know, Warren Christopher was there uh, to negotiate among two gentlemen and two statesmen and to figure out how would we resolve this kind of a problem. He's cleared my calendar for the day. Uh, Jim Baker wasn't interested in, uh, you know, figuring out what accommodation we could come 
to a Montu gentleman, he was there to win. Uh, and he said that was the only thing and he didn't really have anything to talk about. And I think that's a key insight that comes out of looking at that 2000 election dispute for me. He was there to win and he did win. Yeah. The following year, of course, was 2001. Tell us where James Baker was on 9-11. Hmm. He was here in Washington uh, about to attend a conference sponsored by Carlisle Group, which is the high stakes uh, venture you know, investment firm that he was working for at the time. Uh, and, uh, and he was uh, one of the people who was going to be a guest at this conference was one of the Bin Ladens, actually, who had been in it, you know, one of their, their uh, investment partners in the Middle East. Remember, Osama Bin Laden came from a very successful Saudi family with dozens of brothers and sisters, if I remember correctly. And so he wasn't connected to this. But the fact that a Bin Laden was coming to the conference on that very day, of course, was problematic for uh, uh, Baker and the whole Carlisle team. In the end, Baker, like everybody else, uh, is grounded because the, the planes are grounded and he ends up just getting into a car to say, you know, with a pack of Oreos and some pillows and they end up driving as far as they can until they find an airport that's open again to fly back to Houston. But it's a, it's a you know, for him, like everyone else, I think it was a, a searing day. It's one of those fascinating footnotes of history that James Baker would be in the same room with, uh, I assume, estranged members of Bin Laden's family right. uh, on 9-11. Yep. Um, what is James Baker doing now? This is 20 years after all that. Well, you know, he just turned 90 and is remarkably, uh, you know, strong and active. He still has an office at Baker Botts, the family law firm uh, of which he returned uh, to as a partner after his career in public service. Uh, he uh, is a natural deal maker in recent years, uh, you know, if you're distilled down to your essence uh, at the beginning and end of your life, uh, Jim Baker, uh, really, I think deal maker is the thing that he uh, is and that he is always known by. And in fact, um, he, he would, you know, just take great delight. Uh, there was a conflict uh, in the South, across the South, uh, in the Episcopal Church. Jim Baker isn't even Episcopalian anymore uh, uh, over their acceptance of uh, uh, ordination of gay ministers. And uh, many of the Episcopal churches across the South broke away from the National Episcopal Church rather than uh, stay a part of it. Uh, well, the head of uh, the church in Texas approached Baker and said, you know, I, we don't want this to happen. How can you help us? And uh, Baker loves to tell this story, delights in the fact that he was essentially able to do some high stakes diplomacy. And Texas ended up being the only Episcopalian church in the entire South uh, that remained affiliated with the national church. He negotiated essentially a, a, a window of time for the Texans to get used to the new regime uh, rather than break away. And so to me, that's what he's been doing. He's been being Jim Baker, he's been making deals uh, and still working and very active, far more so than others. Well, it's a, the power of intelligence, but also personality. Um, it, it sounds as though someone like James Baker has done a lot of things that other people could never have done. Well, that's right. Of course, it's a tough time for him. He's lost so many of the people who were so crucial in his life. I think for many people, what they really remember uh, was him publicly grieving uh, and mourning uh, his close friend, George H.W. Bush, at the state funeral last year and again at the family funeral in Texas for him. Uh, you know, he uh, tells uh, this incredibly moving story and wept openly uh, at the mere mention of how he was at the bedside of President Bush when he passed away rubbing his feet. Last question, and it's a two-part question. Has James Maker made known his feelings about Donald Trump? If so, what are they? That's a great question. Yeah, uh, he, look, like a lot of Republicans, he has struggled with this. Trump has spent a lot of the last four years demolishing a lot of what Baker had stood for, a lot of what he had built. Uh, issues like free trade, uh, alliances, internationalism, uh, you know, fiscal, you know, uh, responsibility. A lot of these are issues that are important to Baker, but, it, but have been, you know, the party under Trump has gone the opposite way. He also is the anti-Baker when it comes to, you know, working across the aisle, when it comes to conciliation, you know, Baker would never be, um, uh, you know, in favor of the kind of blowtorch politics you see from uh, Trump's Twitter feed. And yet, and yet 
he could not bring himself to vote against him as much as he found him uh, unappetizing in 2016. So there's a lot of this in the book. There's a lot of, the, of his sort of struggling with what to do about Trump in the book uh, that you'll see if you buy it at the bookstores. <laughs> well, I think we ended up feeling like this was sort of a, a metaphor for the party itself, uh, which uh, rejected Trump, which was against what he stood for, uh, deeply uncomfortable uh, with his inflammatory persona and politics, uh, and yet couldn't quite disavow what they understood to be potentially a winning hand. And, you know, Baker is a, an incredible judge of political horseflesh. And one of the things that was uh, really striking for us is talking with him over time uh, as Trump comes from nowhere. Uh, you know, we're still working on this biography, right? So we're talking with him uh, as this incredible uh, campaign plays out and seeing his own wrestling with this understanding uh, that Trump may very well be the future of the Republican Party, his discomfort with it. And by the way, everyone in Baker's life, the Bushes, uh, of course, who were attacked very personally by Trump and uh, you know refused to vote for him, his own uh, uh, friends and family members uh, who were Republicans but could not vote for Trump, they begged him not to do so. And I had a really memorable encounter with Bush, just, to, I mean, sorry, with Baker just a few days before the 2016 election right here in Washington in his hotel at the Willard. And, you know, this was a man, let's just say, who was squirming uh, in a very, very difficult position. So in November, Baker votes for well, we'll have to find out. We'll the last, uh, the last we've talked to him, uh, he says, "I'm still a Republican," and uh, he's he's looking at voting for the Republican candidate. But it's uh, he did tell us at one point uh, he volunteered to us that he would vote for Joe Biden, but that was before Joe Biden became the nominee. So we'll see uh, what happens. Peter Baker, Susan Glasser, thank you for joining me today. The book thank is you. "The Man Who Ran Washington: The Life and Times of James A. Baker III." It is available now with the bookseller of your choice. For profiles on Nantucket Community Television, I'm Charlie Walters. Thanks for tuning in. Please tune in again.